Hello and welcome to the Spike podcast. I'm Fraser Myers and with me today is Spike's deputy editor, Tom Slater. Hello. And Spike columnist, Ella Whelan. Hi. This week on the podcast, left-wing anti-Semitism, Harvard's protests against Harvey Weinstein's lawyer and the rage against Trevor Noah. The Eye this morning, outrage at anti-Semitism speech by Labour MP. This is the front of the Daily Mail, Corbyn's hateful new low. There are people who have accused me of having two masters, that have said that I am Tel Aviv's servant, that have called me a paid-up Israeli operative. It's anti-Semitism of the worst kind. The party has done more to stand up to racism. It's now being demonised as a racist thing. It's a party. In the past 10 months, the Labour Party has received 673 complaints about acts of anti-Semitism. The question over anti-Semitism in the party has dogged it for nearly three years now. Anti-Semitism has long been associated with the far right. So what is it about Jeremy Corbyn's Labour Party that makes it such a breeding ground for anti-Semitism? Tom, would you like to tell us a bit more about this? Yeah, so the reason we're talking about it this week is that the scandal of anti-Semitism in the Labour Party has once again kind of hit fever pitch. Now we're coming off of the back of a couple of weeks in which you had Luciana Berger, the formerly the Labour MP for Liverpool Wavertree, leave the party and join the independent group, naming her main reason effectively that um, anti-Semitism in the party had gotten out of control. She herself had been subject to a lot of vile anti-Semitic abuse and it was even kind of spilling over into a constituency Labour Party itself, you know, not just being online. This week there are a series of leaks to, first of all, The Observer and then The Times, suggesting that members of Labour's top team around the leadership and around the General Secretary, Jenny Formby, had previously been intervening in investigations of anti-Semitism to suggest leniency in certain Mm. cases. And and one indicative example which has been making a lot of headlines in the past 48 hours was one Corbyn ally suggesting that an activist, again in Liverpool as it turns out, who had shared an image... Um, which originated from a far-right website of the Statue of Liberty with this kind of face-sucking alien-stroke-octopus on it with the Star of David on the back. Um, The Corbyn ally was suggesting that they should show leniency in this case because that was obviously about Israel and not about anti-Semitism. If anyone sees the image, it's quite clear what it's supposed to be about. So what I think it's really... what This is a story that's been going on for a very long time, but it seems to be reaching that new level. And I think the the question that is really confronting Corbynistas and that they're now having to respond to is not that anti-Semitism is just a form of racism that affects everyone in society. There is something specific about the Labour left, about the left in general today, which seems to, the best you could say, be oddly hospitable to anti-Semitism. And I think that's the conversation we need to have now, which is what is it specifically about left anti-Semitism that distinguishes it and has made it, you know, something which has been festering almost unnoticed for many of us for such a long time. Ella? It's interesting because as well as being a discussion about anti-Semitism and where anti-Semitism is coming from, the other kind of the next level of the war within Labour is how to deal with it. And it's incredibly confusing trying to keep up with the way in which they are responding to this. Mm. On the one hand, you have um, what seems to be a very hardline approach to just uh, suspending or banning people who even raise questions about the level of anti-Semitism. So you saw the suspension of Chris Williamson, which lots of people supported. Um, but actually, if you look at what he said, it was that he he didn't he didn't come out and make some kind of Jew hating statement. He said that Labour Party was being too apologetic in their uh, response to allegations of anti-Semitism. On the other hand, you've got Tom Watson, one of the most odious politicians in my point of view, essentially capitalising on this whole anti-Semitism scandal. Um, now has put out an email to fellow MPs and peers, telling them that they should report all anti-Semitic 
incidents to him directly, which is kind of completely, you know, bypassing the normal functions within the party. So there's a lot going on. And then the response of people who who want something to be done about anti-Semitism is also sort of slightly complicated. So the Jewish Labour movement had their meeting last night, we're talking on Thursday morning, um, and they decided that they would remain within the party, but very strongly blaming Corbyn personally. Mm. He was mentioned by every single speaker personally. Uh, So the kind of mood coming out from that is that the Jewish Labour movement will remain affiliated to Labour, but it's quite clear that they know who they want to go. It's Jeremy Corbyn. So as well as this being a discussion about anti-Semitism, it's also very quickly revealing that the Labour Party is split uh, between those who really hate Corbyn and Corbyn's supporters and those who are turning either a blind eye or an apologetic eye to incidents of anti-Semitism in order to support him. The scary thing about the Chris Williamson incident, and John Harris made this point in The Guardian, wasn't so much that he came out and said what he said, you know, that Labour have been far too apologetic mm. about anti-Semitism, which I think was a bad thing, you know. Stupid. Was a, he's really putting his foot in it. It was the fact that people cheered him. Yeah. It was the fact that, you know, so many people in that room agreed that anti-Semitism isn't a problem, even when it so self-evidently is. There is something quite conspiratorial in Corbyn's Labour Party, where basically any attack on the leader is dismissed as a smear, you know, yeah. because he's an honest man. He only wants what's good for the country and therefore anyone that attacks him must have an ulterior motive and you can see often what they mean by this ulterior motive by um, the actions of even some MPs so when Luciana Berger you know left the Labour Party joins the independent group because she said the you know anti-semitic abuse against her was you know becoming unacceptable the Labour MP Ruth George suggested that this breakaway party was probably funded by Israel Mm. even the allegations of anti-semitism are met with further anti-semitic conspiracies no completely and on the question of whether or not it's being weaponized for instance or whether it's being used for certain kind of factional gain it's there to be weaponized so therefore you have to kind of take it as a question of what is actually going on chris williamson thing is really indicative of the anti-semitism blind spot within the labor party because one of the things that's really um, has defined labor party has been the kind of mcpherson approach um, the idea that racism is effectively in the eye of the beholder the idea that you can be unwittingly racist as well and this is something which has guided a lot of kind of, you know, left activism around anti-racism for, you know, a long time in this country. And yet when it comes to anti-Semitism, they're more than willing to say, oh, it's being exaggerated. Mm. Oh, um, this is actually, if you really look at it, it's not anti-Semitic. It's actually just about Israel, you know, telling people, <laughs> telling Jews effectively what it is that um, is actually going on. This is entirely cuts against the grain of the way that they would approach any other issue in this circumstance. And that mm. double standard is, is indicative of something. And I think that something is that there is something about left-wing ideology as it currently is particularly around kind of Corbyn is that it is as you say deeply conspiratorial that this incredibly reductive view of capitalism that they have which is that it's not a system it's just a kind of uh, a scheme run by a cabal of people at the top of bankers very easily maps onto old anti-semitic tropes about cabals of Jews running the media running the banks running the world you have the fetishization of Israel in foreign policy terms focusing on it as an almost unique evil in the world and and seeing its hand in global affairs everywhere, which is kind of reflected in that disgusting image that was um, at the centre of the discussion this week. And as well, this broadly speaking, this very um, reductionist, again, um, lame anti-imperialism that often just pits the West against everyone else, and therefore has created around Corbyn and people around him a willingness to make apologies for the anti-Semitism of, say, Islamists. You know, there's mm. the case of Raid Salah, this um, Islamist who had been priorly convicted of actually repeating the blood libel in Israel, who Corbyn invited 
to tea in the House of Commons. Yeah. No one, none of us know what is in Corbyn's heart. None of us can say if he's anti-Semitic. But that confluence of all those factors, those ideological strains, has at the very least created a situation in which he's incredibly comfortable with it in a way that he wouldn't be with any other form of racism. And I think that's what everything from the Chris Williamson thing to the debates we're having now shows about this, that there is this remarkable blind spot which they seem incapable of really getting to grips with the kind of conspiracy theory approach to anti-semitism and the definition of capitalism was obvious in a meeting they had in my constituency diane abbott's constituency in hackney Mm. north where the clp passed a motion to say we call on the nec to firmly reject the accusation that labor is institutionally racist because it is capitalism that is racist i mean that's the essential of the of the motion lots of people have rightly come out and said what are you talking about and people have been quite offended by it. But it's that coupled with the fact that the Labour Party and, and Corbyn supporters have been making some also very stupid decisions. For example, putting Laura Murray, who is the daughter of one of his closest aides, um, in the position of acting head of the complaints unit. And they came out and said, oh, actually, she was really in an admin role. But he was essentially putting one of his closest supporters mm. in the role of dealing with complaints of anti-Semitism. Who was also implicated in one of these leaks earlier this yeah, week. Yeah, and well. lo and behold, they're make, the, the people that he puts in are making decisions that do not benefit the Jews who are complaining about anti-Semitism. So, you know, it's the unwillingness to face up to that as well as this sort of really kind of bizarre, reductive and basic view of how racism happens and also double standards in where racism is and where it isn't. Funnily enough, it's always with other people in relation Mm. to uh, racism against black people or racism against Muslims and never about racism against Jews. That makes you think this is a party that has some very, very deep problems. Hi there. I hope you're enjoying the Spike podcast so far. And if you are, why not help us spread the word by giving us a rating and a review with your podcast provider? It won't take long, but it will make a huge difference for us. So we'd be massively grateful if you could take a tiny bit of your time to give us a rating and a review. Right, now back to the show. Harvard Law Professor and Faculty Dean Ronald S. Sullivan Jr. has been confronted with raucous protests and calls for his dismissal after he joined the defence team of Harvey Weinstein. Students claim that they can no longer work with Sullivan and that his decision threatens their integrity. Ella, can you tell us a bit more about what's happening in Harvard? Yeah, so I think it's really worth reading out a section from the Change.org petition that was set up initially by one of the student activists who Mm. opposed uh, Ronald Sullivan's decision to join the Weinstein case. So the petition says... Do you really want to one day accept your diploma from someone who, for whatever reason, professional or personal, believes it is okay to defend such a prominent figure at the centre of the hashtag MeToo movement? So you kind of get a sense from that what this is about. It's about the idea that what Ronald Sullivan Jr. is doing is not just problematic in terms of the fact that he is a dean and is also involved in something else, but it's directly endangering, offending, Mm. traumatizing students within Harvard. Therefore, the activists who oppose him say that they've got no problem with him being involved in the case, that he should step down as dean because that's his kind of pastoral role. He's supposed to be the one that cares for students. Mm. And this is, by the way, despite the fact that he has sent out an email to students under his care saying 
here is another person that you can mm. contact. Yeah. There is absolutely provisions for you under the normal process of what constitutes a dean, but I'm still going to go ahead and deal with this case. So regardless of that, they're still calling for his head. It's quite tragic that we've kind of expect this kind of mindless rage from pampered students, particularly at elite universities. Mm. It's always the most elite universities who yeah. create the biggest fuss over these things. But what's quite scary is that the administration at Harvard are making concessions to it. Mm. So they've launched what they call a climate review to try and address the concerns that the students have. But as us around the table, I think, would agree that there are no legitimate concerns around this. It's the right thing to do to defend um, a person who is on trial. That's, that's mm. you know, doing the decent thing, surely. No, it's, it's funny you're talking about elite universities as well. It's amazing that some of these students don't recognise that this is an established and very important liberal legal principle, which is mm. it doesn't matter how odious or even how guilty we might think that someone might be in some sort of criminal trial. They have a right to fair and good representation. That It's really important for justice to be done, that um, even some of the most heinous individuals, as we might see as a community, are... Um, given that kind of robust defence, Connor Friedersdorf at the Atlantic wrote a piece about this, and he, was t- he gave a couple of really interesting examples, talking about how John Adams, one of the founding fathers in 1770, defended British soldiers who opened fire on Bostonians, who mm. were at the moment, at the time, incredibly hated individuals. Of course, and um, he quotes Alan Dershowitz talking about how during the McCarthyite era there was a, a real push from Joe McCarthy and others to try and effectively shame liberal lawyers from representing communists and all the rest of it. It's a really important principle about legal representation and yet it just the fact that it's been so thrown out um, and that even not only is it seen as morally suspect to represent these people but it's that it's some kind of moral stain you know mm. the argument being made by the students is that it would effectively re-victimize um, victims of sexual assault on campus to be anywhere near him because he has this residential role in Winthrop College um, I think just shows how not only has the Me Too movement really set itself against some of these established principles of legal impartiality and justice and due process and whatever but also how few defenders there are of it as you say given the administration's capitulations to a lot of this stuff yeah again you know just to reiterate is is shocking this is one of the most prestigious law schools in the world and you know its students are unable to distinguish between defending a criminal and you know defending a crime itself Mm. you know but I think there's there's we could kind of see this coming if we if we look back um, to what's been happening at Harvard over the past few years. So back in 2014, it was reported that a lot of law students were calling for trigger warnings around the teaching of, of rape law um, and some of them even asking for it not to be taught at mm. all because it, it could be potentially distressing. There was a professor, Jeannie Sook, and she said that, you know, one teacher she knew was asked by a student not to use the word violate in class, as in, does this violate the law? Because the word was triggering. So it's you know, generally quite frightening what the next generations of uh, lawyers are, <laughs> are asking mm. for. And yeah. Perhaps they won't even be able to defend, you know, to even prosecute rape in, in the future. Yeah, no, the petition goes on to talk about the need to end the perpetuation of institutional ignorance towards sexual assault and rape on campus. I mean, ignorance about sexual assault and rape will, will happen if you don't actually properly address it. Yeah. Yeah. And I think the... The interesting thing to note here is that obviously the Weinstein case is something that isn't related to university campuses, but there is also a whole discussion and a kind of war going on about the Title IX legislation Mm. on campus, which under the Obama administration essentially instituted kangaroo courts on campus, which meant that the accuser had all of the power and all of the rights that you uh, that cases of sexual harassment went forward on the uh, 
a preponderance of evidence standard, which essentially meant that you only had to have the assumption of guilt in order to prosecute an accused in the kind of campus uh, court. Betsy DeVos, under the Trump administration, is now proposing some eminently sensible reforms to that, uh, to bring the standards up to the kind of normal way that you deal with it in a court of law. So having presumption of innocence, having proper free speech rights for the accused. And she is being slammed as a kind of woman hater, as a misogynist, as someone who wants to re-traumatize sexual assault victims. So you've got a really skewed vision of what constitutes proper process for dealing with sexual harassment on campus, deeply influenced by, I believe, the victim kind of politics deeply influenced by the hashtag me too movement so it's sort of no surprise that students on a you know what is such a prestigious university as harvard have this totally uh twisted view of how to properly deal with something like a sexual harassment case or sexual harassment incidents because they really believe that words that uh dealing with the law properly is a mm. means that will enact real violence on victims. And, it, and also the point that's worth making is if it can happen to someone like Ronald Sullivan Jr., it can happen to yeah. almost anyone. This is a guy with pretty unimpeachable credentials insofar as um, he's been involved in setting up programmes in Brooklyn, New York, to try and make sure that people who've been wrongly convicted could be freed. Um, there's even been quotes coming out in the um, Boston press. There was a, someone quoting the Boston Globe, one of his former students, who not only stuck up for him, but actually said that she had really helped her in terms of making her own sexual assault case in, and furthering that. So the idea that he is somehow going to make students feel unsafe on campus, given his defence of Weinstein, I think is ludicrous. I thought one interesting detail of this story, it was interesting to see Catherine McKinnon come out and suggest that, <laughs> who is apparently visiting professor at Harvard Law at the moment, Catherine McKinnon, of course, being the kind of godmother of um, censorious anti-porn radical feminism mm. and, and probably laying a lot of the intellectual roots for a lot of the kind of trends we're seeing at the moment, come out and effectively say that she, he was siding with Weinstein doing <laughs> this. So I think that is a reminder that this isn't just a kind of general generational thing this isn't just these um millennials or younger popping out of nowhere and not understanding these hard-won legal principles the undermining of due process the undermining of laws having to be forever impartial etc is something that's been going on for quite a long time i'd just like to take a really quick moment to say a massive thank you to everyone who's been donating to spiked i know many of you who listen to this podcast have donated to us in the past or make monthly donations. And it's thanks to your contributions and generosity that we can keep going and growing. Spike to some very exciting plans for the year ahead with our podcasts, and we need the help of listeners and readers like you to make them happen. So, if you haven't before, please do consider making a donation, or even better, setting up a monthly donation. It's really easy to do. Just go to spiked-online.com and click the red donate button in the top right corner. Thank you. Now, back to the show. Trevor Noah, host of The Daily Show, made a joke which caused offence across the globe. He said that a war between India and Pakistan would be the longest and most entertaining ever before he launched into a Bollywood-style song and dance. After the inevitable backlash, Noah noticed that his joke had trended more on Twitter than the India-Pakistan conflict itself. He said that it seems like people are more offended by the jokes comedians make than about the issue. So, do you think Noah has a point there? Oh, definitely. I thought he was absolutely spot on when he said that. And there's something kind of curious about public discussion right now, and we, we talk about it, many other people do, which is the outrage is so often just about yourself. You're so angry at this person who's made this joke that you're not necessarily even aware or particularly au fait with the issue that they're actually 
talking about. Um, mm. And it reminds, reminded me, um, as another example in Britain, of a few years ago, slightly different because we weren't talking about a joke, we were talking about a genuinely odious article, but when Katie Hopkins made the comments about the, um, the refugee crisis and yeah. um, likening my, migrants to cockroaches, etc., there was so much outrage at that. There was... It, outweighed by you know 10 to 1 any discussion that had been previously of the migration crisis up until that point you know mm. the, the tragedy at Lampedusa had happened yep. two years prior to that and there was you know almost zero discussion about it but as soon as someone says something seemingly offensive mm. this is something that everyone leaps upon and I think it does speak to something about political correctness if we want to call it that which is that it is an obsession with words often at the expense of the substance of what those words are discussing not only does it lead to a kind of joylessness that we can't necessarily talk about jokes but it also distorts public discussion more broadly insofar as we spend far more time being upset about what someone said about something rather than actually being upset about what is going on or being angry about what's going on i think this case was just another example of that felt like so i I wrote about this this incident this week and and i connect it to, to an example from back in 2001 when the US were launching the war in Afghanistan. And for me, this is the ultimate example of, you know, how political correctness warps morality, because there was a there was a bomb that was about to be loaded into a fighter jet. And on the bomb, a Navy sailor had had um, scrawled the phrase, hijack this, fags. And the photo was leaked to the press. There was a great deal of outrage. The photo was withdrawn. And one of the big Pentagon top brass came out and apologised and admonished the crew, said this is unacceptable. They need to be more careful with their words. And also said that maybe they should be putting more positive messages on the bomb, like, I love New York, for instance. <laughs> and and so you had this bizarre outrage where people were more angry about the message that was scrawled on the side of what was literally a bomb than they were about the deadly explosives inside it. You know, that... <laughs> and that quote in particular from that admiral just saying that... Um, Members of the armed forces should closer monitor their spontaneous acts of penmanship. <laughs> was just it just signalled something about where we we're going. It felt yeah, and it's, it's just you know literally, and that that war you know started in two thousand and one is still going on to this yeah. day, and mm-hmm. it's it's not going to attract um, many outraged tweeters, I'm afraid. Yeah, lots of jokes come to mind. Most recently, as well, Boris Johnson's letterbox joke about yeah. burkas, um, in which he was actually making a broader point about uh, integration and assimilation and all also talking about in a wider context the discussion about terrorist attacks and how to deal with islamism and yet that was completely ignored quite a Mm. nuanced point was completely ignored by the fact that he'd used this joke which even rowan atkinson defended as funny you know it it, it wasn't a kind of disgraceful racist outburst as some made it out to be i think it's when you're looking at why it is that people react in this way it's because it's so much easier to form a moral judgment around the basis of whether or not you like this sentence or this word or this joke. Mm. That's so easy because it's become, you get kind of social capital now from saying, oh, that's offensive, it shouldn't be said. That's kind of the right on way of talking about it. Uh, That's an easy thing to say. What's more difficult is to form a judgment around the actual issue in place. So Mm. it's, it's incredibly difficult to form an opinion about what's happening between India and Pakistan. It's completely incredibly complex situation yeah uh but it's very easy to point the finger at trevor noah and say that's racist for making a bollywood joke about the situation so there's a kind of uh, a lack of intellectualism in this kind of knee-jerk reaction to censorship but also it's it's sort of a symbol of 
just how low our politics has kind of become when it's all about the formation of uh, the kind of shallow nature mm. of, of the discussion, what form the words take, mm. whether or not you cause offence and never actually dealing with the, the real meat of the thing, which is the issue in itself. You've been listening to The Spike Podcast. If you've enjoyed the show, don't forget to give us a rating, a review, or even make a donation. We'll be back next week, but for more Spike content every day, visit spiked-online.com.